Welcome back to another episode of Tank Talks. I'm your host, Matt Cohen. And on this week's episode, we welcome Andre Cheroux, founder and managing partner at Maple VC. Andre and I discuss his journey into the world of startups and venture capital after growing up in Toronto and eventually making his way to the Valley in 2007 and all the setbacks he faced in those first few years. Andre shares his lessons from his time at Uber, where he was employee number 25, and how long it actually takes to assess a startup's potential for success. Next, we dig into how Andre got pushed into starting Maple in 2016 by his co-founders from Hired, who backed him for his first angel fund, and how they allowed Andre to pick early stage winners that happened to have Canadian roots. Andre shares how he eventually decided to go all in on venture with his first institutional fund in 2020, and how his role as a VC participant has evolved across his first two funds. Lastly, we discuss his long-term vision for Maple and his aspirations for the fund as a solo GP operating from South Korea and how he plans to deploy his most recent Fund 3 vehicle. But before we jump into this week's interview with Andre Cheroux, we welcome back to the tank John Ruffalo to discuss the news and stories making headlines in the tech and venture capital ecosystem. Thanks for joining us back in the tank today, John. Thanks, Matt. You know, there's a lot of headlines going around, but let's focus on the tech stuff that's happening right now. So it sounds like OpenAI is no longer the only game in town, which I think you and I had talked about when it comes to selling this Gen AI intelligence to the enterprises. And it looks like there's been some slowing of their sales to the corporate customers. So less than a year after they launched their ChatGPT product, obviously to consumers and now to the enterprises where we're an enterprise customer, I would say, paying for the premium for all of our employees. There's a lot of other competitors out there offering similar AI services, you know, which could pose a problem for open AI. You know, and Microsoft obviously is trying to do it as a bundling product. You know, what are your thoughts on what's going to happen here? And do you think they are first mover advantage is wearing out for them? Yeah, it's 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 wearing out. So what what it feels like to me here is that they are establishing themselves as really the the consumer gen AI brand. And and frankly, they're doing a phenomenal job at that. But that requires monstrous capital, but it also is very, very fickle users. So I, I can speak for myself. I immediately bought the subscription and I do feel my use case is dropping a little bit because the data is still you know, relatively data, uh, dated in there. So now the other players seem to all be chasing on the enterprise side. And I, I still think that's very much up for grabs at the end of the day. The B2B is where I think this is going to really take massive hold because it's going to be used in everyday enterprises. It'll be mission critical. They'll pay long-term contracts, et cetera. So could uh, could they end up trying both? Yeah, I know Microsoft's going to try that. But right now, uh, OpenAI is really ensconced in the consumer side. Yeah, it definitely feels like there's a huge ramp up and obviously their momentum going into consumers and early enterprise customers like us. But the churn will probably be higher as we look out a year or two. You know, the net revenue retention will not be that high. No, it won't be. But you know what's interesting? The compute costs still remain extremely high. So, well, that's why the Microsoft deal was the best deal they could have ever done. Absolutely. And we're seeing obviously everyone else trying to get through that type of transition of like, hey, we know the demand is there. Maybe the economics are not there, but we need someone to basically forfeit the cost to, to subsidize all this consumption of compute cost in the first year or two as we get the models working faster. And, and Matt, you know, as you and I had talked about, every time there's a big transformational technology revolution like there was with the internet, it goes through you know, the, the infrastructure phase, the, the, the middle phase, and then the, uh, the application 
a phase. What is interesting is, you know, one of the great parallels back in the, uh, in the mid 1990s, who were the most valuable companies? Nortel, Lucent, all the folks that were making the, the equipment. Who's extremely valuable now? NVIDIA, the chip makers. Wow, it always repeats itself. But then once it's built out, then it starts to commoditize. So we're still in that first phase uh, as we speak. Yeah. And speaking about phases, you know, an industry that's going through a hell of a phase right now is the trucking and logistics space. We just saw obviously Convoy shut down abruptly, you know, after being backed by amazing investors like Bailey Gifford, Graylaw, Capital G, Bill Gates, uh, with a peak valuation at $3.8 billion in 2022, you know, with freight volumes coming off a cliff, but oil or diesel costs still staying very high. You know, we know the freight industry with our investment in Rose Rocket, but that's on the software side. You know, the actual trucking logistics infrastructure side is taking a haircut considerably. We're seeing Flexport obviously struggle. You know, what do you make about all this with obviously the pandemic and the leading e-commerce boom shutting down as we kind of tail off into unprecedented levels of supply chain constriction? What else do you think will come about from this convoy disruption? But I, I think you kind of nailed it on the head. So in, in our firm, you know, one of our key five investment areas is transportation and logistics. And what we really try to do is we really try to see, you know, we, we try to map out the future. Well, one of the first things that we did is that we saw that the demand curve moved dramatically and people have recency bias and just think that that tail is going to continue. What we actually did is readjusted it, went back to 2019 and started to say, okay, wait a minute, let's go 10 years behind and start to see. And the picture wasn't as rosy as you would think. Now, you just made a great point is that if you're investing in the software and you're still in your, and you're focusing in on others using it from an efficiency perspective is one thing. But if you're owning infrastructure, trucks, ships, et cetera, that's where you get nailed with the cyclicality. So I don't think that this is going to uh, improve anytime soon. And as this world becomes more and more dangerous, and as supply chains are dislocated, dislodged, the, the need for a lot of the transportation doesn't go away, but it changes quite dramatically. And I think this is one industry that's going to be flipped on its head over the next five to 10 years. Yeah. I mean, if you're basing your revenue model off of, let's say, 3000 revenue per truck, you know, a 50% haircut to those prices is a huge impact on your margins. And that's why, you know, me and you love software because the margins start so high. You know, even if you have to take a bit of a haircut, 10, 20%, you're still above 50% margins. But when you're starting at the highest point of, you know, sales uh, in peak revenue with very middle of the ground re- margin, any hit to that hurts. We see this in the used car marketplace industry with a lot of the turnover there. We see this in the uh, construction industry with like the rental run example. When you're starting to base your business model on the peak projections of an industry at the peak and the margins are still starting at 50%. It's a really tough spot to start. Right. And, you know, the nice flexibility of when, you, when you're an asset like business is if you are in a cyclical business, like you might be in the transportation logistics business, you could trade off profitability, short-term profitability for increasing market share so that once it goes right back up again and you've increased your market share, 
the profitability will be even greater than you had beforehand. So you could do that sort of stuff. But exactly what you said, on the fixed costs, you, you start selling stuff. That's a problem. They're called, they're called fixed costs for a reason. So, exactly. you know, talking about write downs and sort of, you know, write offs, you know, venture capital obviously is going through a deep slump here uh, coming out of 2022 peak season. But there was a firm that we all know well starts with an S and ends with Sequoia. Uh, Oya? Actually, Oya. uh, Actually had markups on their recent portfolios. They had marked up 15 of its funds by an average of 9.2%, according to UC Regents Alternative Investment Report for the fiscal year ending June 30th. So Sequoia, you know, had some write downs, obviously. Uh, They took a write down on the FTX and everything like that. But as majority of firms are writing down their funds, given that they've gone through like their audits and everyone's trying to based them off of public comps, Sequoia saw Mark up. So what do you make of this? Well, I, I haven't seen the detailed uh, underlying investments. So there's a, there's a couple of things. What I don't know, were they very aggressive a year ago in writing down when they, when they should have, and a lot of firms did not. So it might be that they did this. Maybe you compare this to two years ago, and are they really up or down? If the answer is no, they weren't aggressive in dropping down. Either they're the, you know, they're a damn good firm. Like they're a highly respectful, respectful firm. But they've also invested in some doozies and very, very high valuation. So it does leave me scratching my head. Now, you and I have talked about this before, and I know that there is a misinterpretation out there in the marketplace. But the reason why DPI matters is at the end of the day. You could mess around all you want with your marks. And who the hell knows? But at the end of the day, cash is going to say whether you were full of shit or not. <laughs> and and people don't want to see it. Now, no one is saying expect your DPI in three or five years. But when you say that you have a 10-year life to your fund and you've got no DPI after 10 years – then that's a problem because that's the basis on which your LPs have invested in. This is why I'm not a huge fan of the continuation funds because how did you construct your portfolio? Now, there's also a great secondaries market too if you really think that there is something great uh, of an asset and you and, and, and there's some good competitive pricing in that space. So anyways, it will be interesting just to really see, but yeah, that that actually took me by surprise. Well, I think it also begs the question is like, why isn't there more just transparency in how funds are marking? Going to the the auditors to say, hey, tell us how we should mark our assets is one thing. But you know, at Ripple, we decided to create our own valuation policy framework and we share it with every one of our LPs in all of our presentations and reports. And it basically says, we will not mark up any asset on a safe note, convertible note, blah, 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 unless it is a raise of over $10 million. A material third-party led raise. Third-party led raise that's uh, only capped at a certain markup. So if it's more than 15 times, we don't mark it up more than that. So that's one time. And then the other thing too is, you know, if there are write-downs or or rounds that are reduced lower, you have to write them down. You know, safe notes that are raised lower, let's say, or different uh, press stacks that are raised. Just tell people how the framework works. I think it's something that a lot of firms are scared to do maybe. But it just sets the bar much easier and less ambiguity. Yeah. And in the wise words of Fred Wilson, you know how I, I just think he's you know, the most incredible in managing it. Whenever they have an exit, he always manages to have about a, at least a 10% pickup. Not too much either, 
but about 10%. That says that he is nailing and they're managing and taking serious their valuations. And there's no secret why they raise their funds in 12 minutes. Yeah, I mean, look, you had Kosla Ventures, Ventures <laughs> lost an average of 16% of value. Uh, Kanan wrote down funds by 21%. GGV, uh, Iconic gave up 25%. Like, there were so many other competitors to Sequoia writing down. It just seemed a little strange that they were, on average, marking And that up. many funds. And that, and many, that funds. many funds, exactly. You know, speaking of uh, Kosla Ventures, Renaud Kosla put out a tweet the other day that said, my daughter got married earlier this year. I can't sing for the life of me, but I wrote what I wanted to say in her speech, entered into ChatGPT, and then created a rap song using music AI, and then presented the actual speech and rap song together. I love this because I think it's the truth of like how people who are just not sophisticated enough from a talent skill level can still use ChatGPT and uh, AI tools to actually make themselves like look and feel cool. Yeah, I chuckled at that. I, I, by the way, I don't know about you. I haven't listened to what he actually did. So no, I, I haven't quite, listened to it either. Anybody has that, it. please forward that yeah. on. I'd be dying to listen to that. I, you know what? I'm trying to find ways to create like songs that I can sing over my guitar playing, which is not <laughs> that good for my daughter using ChatGPT. So I'll admit it. I've used it to create songs for my kids about teddy bears. So, uh, but that's it. Uh, thanks so much for joining us in the tank today. All right, thanks, buddy. Take care. Now let's jump into the tank for this week's episode with Andre Cheru from Maple VC. Thanks for joining us in the tank today, Andre. Great to be here, Matt. You know, Andre, I remember meeting you uh, for the very first time at the C100 48 Hours in the Valley event. I think it was back in 2019 in SF, and I was blown away by your energy and passion for startups as well as Canadian entrepreneurs. But before we jump into all of that, it would be great if you can give, provide our audience with a brief background on where you grew up, you know, what your childhood was like. I know your Canadian roots, but for our audience, it may be great to hear them. And eventually how you made your way into the startup world and eventually the venture career. So I grew up in Markham, Ontario. This is a Canadian audience, so I can go as, as deep to the actual township or the city that I, that I grew up in versus just uh, Toronto. I went to Toronto Montessori School at Bayview, Bayview and Highway 7. I went to Crescent High School, studied economics at the University of Toronto. And bo- so born and raised, that was the 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 gist of my Canadian uh, roots um, story, but after college, I uh, ventured to the U.S. Um, and and the reality, uh, I had a cousin who uh, was a couple of years ahead of me that went to Wall Street and convinced me that investment banking would be one of the hardest, uh, most intellectually stimulating jobs out of out of college. So I followed him there. I tried to do it in Canada, and this will come back later in the story, but. Um, I got rejected by every bank in in Canada. And so maybe I'm grateful for those rejections because it led me in many ways to where I am today. Uh, Otherwise, I would have stayed in Canada pretty much probably so my entire career. I ended up joining an investment bank in the U.S. Um, I did M&A at a bank called Wachovia Securities, which is now part of Wells Fargo in Charlotte, North Carolina. So I went from Toronto to Charlotte. I was on a deal team that sold a company in in, in the U.K., I hadn't really seen much outside of Toronto as a as a child. My parents were from Jamaica, so other than trips to Jamaica, you know, every couple of years, um, that's all I kind of knew. And so uh, when I saw London, London, UK, I fell in love and and uh, sort of pounded the table to the bank of like wanting international exposure. They happened to open up a group called the Debt Capital uh, and, and their Debt Capital Markets team, 
out in the UK. And uh, I was fortunate to get a call to, to join them to be their analyst in that group. And so two-year typical analyst program in, in investment banking, one year in M&A in the US, one year in debt capital markets in the UK. I knew banking wasn't for me. I was more attracted to the founders on the other side of the table. And so I wanted to get the two years under my belt, but um, quickly swung the pendulum to the other side of the the table and tried my hand at starting a company. And so that's what brought me into uh, tech and, and ultimately Silicon Valley. So I got to Silicon Valley in 2007 because I founded a company with my flatmate at the time. We raised a bit of money and um, that money came from Silicon Valley. And so I landed in the mission in SF in 2007. Obviously did not know 2008 was around the corner. So Pretty much anything you started in 2007 wasn't going to survive. My idea wasn't particularly great. And so uh, I'm grateful for the experience, though, despite the company not working out, you know, being able to raise money, ship a product, hire people, generate revenue. We did all of those things, which was which was a bit of a drug for me. Um, but yes, the company failed. And, and shortly thereafter, uh, we did a number of pivot pivots, but it, it just, the writing was on the wall. I guess it's worth noting as a Canadian, right? Like I'm on visas in the U.S., so you can't just stay in the U.S. So I, I did everything possible, got as many sort of traveling visas as I could to keep going back. And to be honest, I tried everything to just stay in the Valley. It felt it felt like the energy I love. I slept on couches. I have friends who, who went to the GSB at Stanford that think of me as the entrepreneur in residence because I said, I spent about a, I spent about a semester on on the couches there, bumming around classes. I just would I'd bum around University Avenue, and like the, that was the vibe there. Like you could you could just the serendipity was real. You could bump into people with big ideas, and and I dedicated my life at that time. I, I didn't articulate it as well at that time, but I think I dedicated my life to company building at the earliest stages at that time. And 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 that's because like you know my parents were like you're. You're a failed banker. You're a failed founder. Like, go get <laughs> a respectable logo on your resume. So I could have joined or tried to join a Google or a pre-IPO Facebook. There was a plethora of larger companies in a 2009 context in the Valley. But for a reason, man, I decided, you know what? I, I would love to find someone with a, an ambitious idea and see if I can convince them to join them on their journey. Now, now that I knew that I didn't want to come up with the idea, having tried that, failed. Maybe, maybe others, you know, come up with better ideas than I could, but I felt pretty compelled that I could help them on their journey. And so the short version of that story is from 09 to 2019 for a decade, I joined four founders as early as possible. And again, like I'm, I'm addicted to the stage of like, I have an idea. It's a, it's on a paper. Uh, here's this ambition. And you know, could I go help you? achieve that in some way, in some small way. I joined four of those founders and and all before they were they happened to be between two and twenty-five. I didn't plan that. That's just where my energy kind of led me to these companies. And and I'm grateful for the introductions of the serendipity that was bestowed on me in Silicon Valley to 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 meet those founders. But I fortunately got it right two out of the four times. Um and as we know I, I got it really, really right from a picking perspective with 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 uber right and so 25th employee of uber 10 or so employee at hired and in 2016 to wrap the story of how you get how you parlay this into venture people started to tell me wow your hit rate is really high it's just 
for having joined so early in the most non-obvious states. Like the reality is most people laughed at me when I joined the limousine service. Obviously it wasn't, it wasn't obvious that that taught me a lot um, into the job that I'm, that I'm doing today. But I realized like, wow, okay, maybe there's a knack for me to, to find these things at the earliest stages. And then my community was also saying like, not only were you able to pick them in their most not obvious days, but you're able to help them. You know, I hired Uber's most influential executive, Andrew McDonald's, who's now 12, 13 years. Star has told me directly that he's like number two. I, I hired Mac. Um, the runner up to Mac ended up being uh, another Canadian uh, in our ecosystem, Neelam Ganentharan, who joined Instacart as employee three, then became Instacart's president eight years later. So people are like, okay, this is not a fluke. Not only did you pick two important companies really early uh, with talent, you you help them, you know, in multiple ways, uh, not just not just in one instance, um, uh, with scalable talent that went really really far. And so when that uh, analysis was kind of presented to me from others, like the market in a way, I started to ask myself, well, what are the patterns? All of those instances, both Uber and hired, the people I hired in it um, uh, at those two companies that went really really far, they all came from Canada. <laughs> I had like the US Canada sort of exposure to be able to compare and contrast. I hired a bunch I, I launched Uber in New York, I launched Uber in DC. Like I hired a bunch of people in those markets and I can compare and contrast. Uh I, I launched 17 markets in six countries were hired. I can compare and contrast. The the four companies I joined, two were American, two were like I can compare and contrast. I started to notice, well, wow, why why are the these Canadians sort of why, why is there like these outliers as it relates to this place that I'm from? And I started to pull on this thread, particularly a Canadian expat thread, people who leave Canada, and I started to notice, holy shit, in any given category. These these Canadians have created some of the biggest companies in tech. So, you know, Uber, Slack, Instacart, Roblox, Databricks, Cloudflare, Notion, Fair, Binance, Ethereum. No, many people are talking about this right now, but the co-founder of OpenAI came from University of Toronto. In any given category, I believe there are one, two, maybe max three winners. I deeply believe you will find a Canadian at the helm of one. And I re recognized this in 2016 and got the encouragement from my network to be like, we think you would be really good at the craft of venture. Instead of joining a company and staying with them for one to two years, which has been the general duration as you look at my resume at each company, you could bet on as many, join as many companies as you want and help them in the same capacity that uh, I was helping them as an early stage employee. I realized I have spikes in my ability to help. And I'm probably more useful in optimizing around those spikes than being there 24 seven at those companies that really landed that like venture is really just an extension for me as what I've been doing for a decade. And it just comes in a different form factor and it comes with some capital. And so, yeah, the founders of hire uh, really put me in business actually with with a proof of concept fund, if you will, of a million dollars. The way this came about was I was going to leave hired um, Ray Reddy. We, we know ritual in the Canadian context. Ray Reddy had called me and, and the Mentella folks where I did a small stint as an EIR to join them as employee too. And it was like the same thing that I was going to do that I did at Uber and hired. And so I was ready to 
leave. And I went for my exit interview with Hired and they were like, dude, no, you can't leave. We need you here. What if, until you get your liquidity event, why, what if we seeded a fund for you so you could invest? Um, and scratch that itch. And we, and, and again, I was being told that you'd be really good at this craft. Um, and in exchange, you need to stay and, and see this next part of the journey with us, uh, from an expansion perspective. And it was the best sort of retention package you could have asked for. I'm really grateful for that. And they asked me for two things. One, what's the least amount that you could raise so that it's not distracting from your day job. And two, what's going to be your strategy. I came back with a million dollars and I, and the thesis there was I'm not going to spray and pray it like a typical angel fund. I learned that the best investors hit it out of the ballpark one out of 10 times. And I want to be in that category of, of investors. And uh, I decided, well, if, if, if they hit it out of the ballpark one out of 10 times, I need to bet on 10 or less companies to demonstrate that I can do the same. And if that works out, then I have a shot. If it doesn't, I just don't, I could go back to keep joining companies. I'm pretty good at that. That was the why the 1 million. And, um, and I'll tell you kind of, we invested it into nine companies uh, just to stick it, just to stick it, even not an intent, just to stick it to both and myself and, and, to the, and to prove to the market. But the second piece on the strategy was this, was this idea that I uncovered this unique network and insight around Canadian expats and decided, gosh, what if there was a fund? that was like waving the Canadian flag, hence the name that I chose. But what if it was ironically not based in Canada? Could I capture the most ambitious Canadians in a network? Those who stay, great, the next Toby. I learned that, you know, even seed investors at Shopify aren't Canadian. So so the most ambitious Canadian founders want an outside perspective on their cap table as early as possible because they're generally building companies for a global context and, and want that interconnectivity with folks outside of Canada as early as possible. And then there's a bunch of people, as we know, who've left. I, I happen to be part of that network. And I've found that they're sure as hell not calling a Canadian VC in Canada once they've left. If I could position myself outside, I would see both networks. That would position me um, differently than, than, than other folks playing in the Canadian ecosystem or context. And so wrote nine checks, and six of those investments, Matt, went went to the later stages to my over three years, 2016, 2019. And the late like later stages meaning series B D series B C D. And they're still going. I only have one one loss, which is expected, right? But uh, the big eyebrow raiser was every one of them ended up with tier one BC. Three follow ones from Sequoia, two from Andreessen, Greylock Founders Fund, Lightspeed Tiger, and Insight. And I didn't know those funds at the time. But all of a sudden, in 2019, they all started to spend time with me and realized, how is your hit rate so high? And you've literally only written nine professional checks in your life. And they're like, you're a generalist. There's hardware here. There's consumer. There's B2B. There's dev tools. There's marketplace. Like, how is that possible? And I said, well, don't let the secret out of the bag. But I guess it's, it's, now, it's now out of the bag. But if you scroll to the bottom of every of those founders' LinkedIn pages, you'll notice one thing. They went to school in Canada. And I happen to believe deeply of that DNA. And I can maybe from a lived experience know how to bet on that DNA faster than others, my counterparts in the US per se. And they like that. And so many of those funds that I named asked me to be a scout. Um, and I was like, well, I can't be a scout for all of you. And in 2019, 
I had a few tailwinds that were in my favor, I would say, which was, you know, Shopify became a hundred billion dollar company between 2016 and 2019. So actually in the Valley, people started to give a shit about Canada all of a sudden. And I built a brand about being the Canada guy in the Valley. And so I started to have meetings with like Mark and Teresa would spend time with me trying to learn about the Canadian ecosystem. Bill Gurley from my Uber days would like rekindle. Like there was just, the market was like, if you think about yourself as a product market fit, all of a sudden there was like, whoa, there's product market fit on this like angle that I have, particularly in a Silicon Valley context. And then solo GPs became, I think, a little bit more kosher in the market. Like institutionally, institutional investors were backing solo GPs. I'm grateful for my friends, Lockheed Groom, who was employee 30 at Stripe or Josh Buckley or, or, or Elad Gill, these folks have raised hundreds of millions of dollars as, in, as, as solo GP uh, and backed by, by some of the most res- respectable institutions out there. And, and I think institutional investors started to realize that BC has been a solo sport pretty much from the beginning. If you look at any of the storied firms, a handful of partners, if not one or two, actually drive most of the returns. And uh, founders want to work with a specific person at a fund it's one of those unique asset classes where it does come uh, a little bit down to the individual. And so that was a tailwind that was helpful. And then this one's sad, but Black Lives Matters happened. While that is sad, people started to back people that look like me. Um, you know, that was uh, very fortunate uh, for me. And so I realized I have a shot, given the track record of the proof of concept fund, this thesis to prove that Canadian diaspora will lead to higher at bat to potential home run ratios than any other network and these tailwinds in my favor. So I set out to go raise a $10 million fund. I didn't think it was ra- like, it was rational to think you can go from writing hundred K checks to think you can go writing million dollar checks the next day. So I was going to go write two fifty K checks. That seems logical. Right. And then build the muscle, maybe 500 K checks. And like, I'm going to take my time. To, to, to get to where I want to be. That ended up being 16 and a half million. It did take me two years to raise in like the best market known to man, which was, was interesting, but it is what it is. I deployed it and raised it along the way. And so that was 2019 to 2022 deployed. Um, and uh, now I'm on my third vehicle or call it my second institutional fund. And we're raising 35 uh, to 45. We've closed uh, 50% of it. And I've closed it in half the time. More, I've closed more than my, my first fund in half the time or less than half the time it took me to raise that uh, fund in the best market. And now we're, we know we're in a shittier market. So I'm, then that I'm feeling pretty good. That was a long-winded um story, but that gets us to now. No, no, that was great. I mean, look, there is a lot to unpack there and I appreciate you going through the entire journey in great detail. Let's pull on a couple of threads here. You know, first, it sounds like you're a glutton for punishment. You just love either, you know, being told you can't do something and trying to do it, or you love other people telling you they're going to do something, which sounds crazy or impossible and non-obvious as you say to outsiders, but want to be along for the ride. So, I mean, tell me about your time, obviously, you know, being at Uber, number 25, obviously you didn't stick around long enough or else we wouldn't be talking because those shares we worth a lot more than you and I have time for. But sort of what lessons did you learn from your time at Uber and at Hired about like how long it takes for some of these things that you believed in early for others to actually see them as successes? Yeah, good question. It takes about a decade. Like if I were to tell myself any advice as a young person, 
I think, and if I, I don't have children yet, when I have children, I will tell them that you should think in decades. Things do not happen in, in shorter periods than that. Like, like really important, really important things. It's hard in this uh, Instagram uh, generation. <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> and so yeah, when you make these decisions to join a company, to invest in a company, to take it to the direction in life, like, like the ripple effect will show itself in a decade. And so if you think about it and if you take a long-term view on things, it maybe changes how you make that decision at <laughs> the time that you make that, you know, and, and I wish I maybe knew that, but that, that is one lesson that, or something I think about. And then what's amazing about the 10 year sort of horizon, right? Classic, I think Bill Gates, right? Like we underestimate what's possible in a decade, actually. We, 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 and then we overestimate what's possible in like a couple of years. That's the beauty of our industry that we're in. Like, like you can completely change the game for yourself, for a market that you serve, like in a decade, like, and probably more than one could imagine. Lessons learned from Uber, like one, Travis had a long-term view. No one knew this, but what he told me when I asked him in the interview process, what's the vision of Uber? He was like, we're going to deliver you anything. It just so happens to be a black car today that takes you from point A to point B, and we're going to maniacally focus on that. But we're building a logistics angle for a city. No one would have seen that with a limousine service, dude. And I have to believe it's the same of books for Amazon, sports cars for Tesla, uh, a social network at a college for, for Facebook, et cetera. The story goes on. And so what's the non-obvious, unique, unique starting point, but paired with an ambition that is like bigger than people might be able to see, but it needs to be able to capture your imagination. And it, and, and like, that's one package that I took out of, of Uber. That non-obvious part also really, you need to kind of stress test this, right? Like for me, when I had, I had an offer from Jawbone, uh, if you remember the Fitbit competitor to run their Jambox as a marketing manager. And then I had this Uber cab, it was Uber cab offer at the time to be this made up title called the launcher, which most people didn't understand. And like shared this with both all my smartest friends and colleagues, family, all of them. They're like, what should I do? What, what should I, what should I, who should I, what should I, what should I take? And um, hands down, dude, everyone said this one. And, and one zero and another is a hundred billion. The, the lesson there is when something's not obvious, like you got to go talk to 10 people and nine of them need to tell you you're crazy. Like nine of them need to be like, I don't see it. I don't get it. And I, now as an investor, I look for that. I look for like, what is making me uncomfortable about this unique thought or, or idea or starting point that this founder on the other side of the table is telling me? I actually need to feel uncomfortable. Like I want to feel, I want to feel that again. What I felt that at Uber when I joined, it was not comfortable going against the grain of my family and friends, smartest friends, to be like, to like, like, why would you, why would you do that? That's that's a big lesson. And then second lesson in that is you have to figure out how to get to conviction on your own, <laughs> because I joined Uber not with anyone telling me you should. I have to get to my own conviction of why you would choose to make this jump versus versus that jump. And now as a pre-seed seed investor, guess what? There's no like consensus. And if there is, I probably like question it. <laughs> if there's consensus at seed, if like everyone wants into a company, like I'm like probably not injured. Like 
Like that's like a bad signal for me. In fact, one of the signals I use in a Canadian context that uh, I hope my fellow friend, friendly VCs uh, don't hate me for this, but but the more rejections a founder gets in a Canadian context, I actually love it. Oh, I love that. Like send me all the founders that all the VCs reject. And like those are, in fact, Naples actually riddled with in a Canadian context, you know, I have founders outside. It's like 50, 60, 40, something like that outside versus inside Canada. But the ones in Canada are the ones that actually generally got rejected um, at the earliest stages when I was able to invest at uh, inside a Canadian context. And, and I use that as a very positive signal. Um, and that's because this business is a little bit about pattern recognition, right? There is very few people in, at my, at, who, who had joined a enduring, long-standing company like an Uber at the earliest, earliest stages. Shopify obviously being our version of that in a Canadian context. But again, very, very few in this business of venture that were at that stage, call it one of the first 25, right? Who, who, who like knows what that feels like. And so when a founder is looking for capital and they have two people, right? They're one of, how do you pattern match to be able to be like, Hey, like that, that is, that is something I felt before. Let me, let me, let me write it, write a check. That's harder to do. Um, which is generally why I think those folks, the most ambitious ones, tend to look to Silicon Valley, uh, where I pick them up, right? Right. This this is my strategy. Um, because there's there's a plethora of of, of those investors who big early. Let's talk about the pattern recognition though. So, like, you know, you obviously sound like you're a contrarian, like me. We kind of grew up a little bit around the same time. We both moved to the States for banking and then obviously saw the world falling apart and then realizing it's not that bad. And then looked at starting a company and realized this is really fucking hard, but if it doesn't work out, it's not that bad. But the pattern recognition that others had in you is what sounds like was the really big unlock that you didn't even see in yourself. And that's about how you added value by hiring people early at Uber, like Andrew McDonald and others. And also the way that you just picked founders that were not obvious from a pattern record standpoint. So what do you think is wrong, I guess, with the Canadian investor mindset where so many of them miss out on these Instacart wishes, notion, Canadian founder root companies that holds us back from being on the cap tables and having a piece of those home run companies. There's nothing wrong. It's a fundamental. They have not been there. Right back to your point of pattern recognition. So they don't have, they haven't seen the pattern. Correct. That's it. There's nothing wrong. It's just a matter of you haven't seen it. You've never seen what it feels like to be one of the first 20 at a company that becomes a hundred billion dollars or 50 or 10, <laughs> um, maybe now one, maybe there's a few at the one billion, which is cool. So it's, it's purely based on like, there is no one around the table that you could, you could, you could rely on, or you could talk to that has felt it, seen it, experienced it. And so it's nothing that they've done wrong. It's just that it's never been done. Right. I, I guess the the counter to that, though, is like you also had some losses in your uh, career, which probably are important uh, as an investor now that you look upon when also looking at what all the things that could go right. So there's trying to find a balance, I guess, for you in that as well. Because if you only had success early on with like an Uber and you wrote it all the way, maybe you would have thought everyone would become the next Uber. That is fair. However, reflecting on the losses, Matt, I rarely talk about losses and it taught me a lesson there where which is i think that added old age that is like we learn from our failures i completely disagree from a professional context i think you learn a ton 
per- personally, you know, characteristics and all those things. Like from a personal perspective, you learn a lot from failures. But I would argue in a professional context, you pretty much only learn when you are on a winning ship. But you were you were thinking it was going to be right, let's say, in whatever the loss was in, in fun one. You thought it was going to be right. So you were you know, going in with that mentality. It didn't turn out that way. You're saying professionally there was no lessons from the, the ones that didn't work out that you carry through to make sure the winners win? No, be, uh, because what is unique about winning is no success is created equal. And so you can't replicate what we did at Uber to expect you're going to, you're going to, you're going to apply it to the next one. You can be inspired by it. There's like more patterns of what great looks like in those early days when people didn't know it was great, right? I was in the room when we were like trying to figure out how to get drivers and riders and how to scale and turn left versus turn right. And like those, that was just, that was, I, I look back like that was this crazy gift more than any money that one could make. It's like a massive gift that was given to me to just be there at this point in time, which now fast forward happens to be the point in time that I invest. And and as you know, like I built a bench of another 15 people who have literally been at the point of time in the most important companies in the world. And that is a plethora of knowledge of how to win. Again, you're going to have to apply just like the patterns and the, the the frameworks to your own to your own problems and solutions, and you can't replicate them per se. But there's so much more learning and goodness in there than hey, don't go do that because you could go do that and it could work out. So like, why are you telling me that just because it didn't work out for you doesn't mean like it won't work out for me? Like it didn't work out for you for a whole host of reasons, like. Sure, things that you could learn when when things don't work out is like timing. You know, most ideas. I I, I subscribe to this Mark and Dreesen sort of uh, view that like most ideas aren't bad. It's just like a question of when that idea will work versus like that's just a bad idea. Like most of you know, most people are going to come up with pretty smart ideas. It's just like tell me why this timing is like the, the perfect time for this this idea. Yeah, I guess interesting. It's like your anti-pattern recognition, I guess, uh, from all the patterns that you've seen or others try to impose on founders that you obviously disagree with, sounds like. Interesting. I appreciate you sharing that with us. I think that's a really interesting take. You know, you mentioned in your second fund, which was a $16.5 million vehicle raised in 2020, 2021, I guess. Announced in 2021, but yeah, raised between 2019 and 2021. Yeah. You know, you mentioned you had a lot of GPs that were interested in uh, either having you as a scout or having you work with them. You know, how did you choose which ones to work on uh, from the LP side and who are also GPs? And also, you know, and add on to that as a, a, a venture partner at Inovia, you know, who I believe is an LP. You know, how did you manage all those relationships? This business at its core is a relationship networking business. It was something I've been told back to my investment banking days that I happened to be really, really good at. Uh, I didn't know that it would turn into, you know, be su- super helpful in this job that I have because yeah, I deeply believe venture is about networks. And so r- really I leaned into the people where we have shared taste, you know, I, and I had this proof of concept fund. It was just me. And as these GPs at top funds or these funds followed on, we started to, form a bit of a tribe to be like, wow, we have shared taste, you know, like 
10% of my portfolios are with Sequoia. And so like Sequoia has told me, and now we meet every quarter, like, like, wow, we have this shared taste, so we should hang out. And then you get to know what they like. You, you know what they're looking at. And um, I can route founders to these GPs in, in, a, in a unique way. Josh Koppelman, who saw me operate at Uber at first round, is an LP. Well, you know, I, can, I know what he likes or what he's looking at. And so I can route my founders um, uh, to, to these, to these uh, GPs in a, in a unique way. And as you mentioned with Inovia, uh, the, the, the same, the same thing there. Um, what, what was unique more about Inovia where it turned into an actual venture partner sort of consulting relationship per se, but the economic relationship is the LP, um, relationship as you, as you pointed out, they are LPs and put me in business from April two and re up from April three out of their new discovery program. Um, and I'm super grateful for that was the Canadian angle. Um, I did get other venture partner offers at Silicon Valley firms, but uh, I leaned into Inovia because Maple is all about Canada and Canadians. And so there was like a mission alignment that was uh, more aligned with Inovia than any other fund. As a seed fund, pre-seed fund that doesn't physically sit in Canada, it was very important to me to be aligned with a firm that physically sits in Canada because I will invest in Canada. I'm just doing it differently than everybody else. I'm investing in Canada. In fact, I actually did the math. I think 60% of the actual dollars I've deployed is in Canada. It's it's 40% of the company. It's 40 to 50% of the company. But from a dollar perspective, I'm actually investing dollars in the country, which is harder to get over in the minds of the LPs in Canada, by the way, because I'm doing it differently than everyone else. The founders I get to see in a Canadian context are different precisely because I am not so that's how I've differentiated myself in the Canadian ecosystem. Founders view Maple differently than if I was down the street from them. And, and, and so I get to see a different founder. I get to meet a different founder. And, and that's why the Maple portfolio, I mean, I do share companies with the Canadian VCs as well, but I also have a set of founders that I don't share with them. And, um, and that's precisely because of how I've set up the strategy to invest in the country um, by doing it uniquely um, outside. And so that's why I needed partners and and uh, distribution channels, frankly, um, into a Canadian context. So actually, most of the firms in Canada are my LPs. Um, you can probably name all of like all of them are my LPs. And one would say, why is that? Why are they all like, like your LPs? <laughs> because they, aren't they competing? They realize that Maple sees a different set of founders than they do, both inside and and definitely outside. Well, it's also the stage you invest as well. I mean, we have a handful of, you know, GPs as well from, you know, the US markets and LPs in our funds. And I think it's the stage as well that helps clear the air for that. But, you know, you mentioned, you know, investing in Canada while being outside of Canada. You know, you are currently in South Korea, in Seoul, operating, I think it's around four or five in the morning there, investing in North America. I mean, that's incredible and a, a testament to your hustle. Uh, and energy for this ecosystem. I got to ask you, know, how have you managed to operate the fund all the way overseas in Korea with a larger pool of capital? And how are you still managing as a solo GP with that increased pool of capital uh, in this kind of market to deploy? So as I mentioned, I think that this business is a network-based business. And you're really as good from a venture capitalist perspective, as good as your network that you could bring to those founders to help them 
their journey and give them any form of unfair advantage or edge that they couldn't otherwise get at some other firm. And so I'm constantly building my network. And as you know, my Canadian roots feel like I have, I feel like I have the Canada network down while that's always, there's always room to grow, but I feel like, um, C100, thanks to them has, as the co-chair, which I just recently rolled off has, um, uh, has put me in touch with, with, the Business Council of Canada, Canada's top 100 CEOs. So I feel like from from the ground level to to the highest of the high, I can have I have I have the access that I that I, I think is beneficial to founders in a Canadian context. Uh, I mentioned I got to Silicon Valley in 2007, so the, there's like deep rooted relationships for the 15 years that I've been in the Valley and working for companies out, out, out of the Valley. And so like, that's battleground number one. That's always going to be constant sort of grow the network. Uh, but I feel like now, as I mentioned with many of the storied firms as LPs, I feel like I can get to anyone I need to get to at this stage of my career in a, in a, in a Silicon Valley context. And while a personal reason brought me to Korea, my wife happens to be Korean. It's here on a temporary work assignment, which brought us out here. Uh, I am adding a new node to my network that other people do not have. And recently, Matt, I recently co-led a seed round with a Dreesen's crypto team. And uh, not announced yet, but uh, I won that deal. Uh, it's, it's a gaming infrastructure company. I won that deal because of the, con- of, of the connections I was able to bring to the table uh, from Asia. Uh, a- gaming happens to be massive in Asia. Um, Korea actually has two double-digit billion-dollar gaming companies, probably the biggest gaming companies in the world. I was able to bring in a venture firm that uh, has backed uh, the largest gaming platform in the world. The founder was like, no one else. Like, maybe Adreesen could have done that, and they did fight um, to get not to have more allocation than, 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 was, than the founder wanted to give me. But the founder went to bat for me, so I effectively won that deal by being here. And I realized, wow, I couldn't have told you you know, one and a half to two years ago when I got here, that this is going to show up and give me an edge over other other people. But it's starting to prove that, and it's starting to reinforce this idea that this business is a network. Take Neo, for example, um, at the growth stage in the Canadian context. I've been able to bring growth stage investors that my colleagues who are also on the cap table could not bring because I'm building these relationships with massive pools of capital that want to invest in North America from, from Korea. And I found that to be unique as well. And so uh, I'm just basically adding a node to my network out here, and it's just making more of an edgy investor over, over others. And uh, it's making me more competitive. It's a very, very competitive landscape, particularly in a Silicon Valley context. And so I'm constantly trying to find that, that edge. And so that's the work I'm doing and, and how it's adding value to the, to the platform. Um, that I'm building from a managing the fund perspective, solo GP at the end of the day, uh, as I mentioned, right? Like I have the spike, it's generally around talent growth and like follow on fi- and like financing those happen at a point in time, you know, in companies, those are mainly the three things that founders call me on. And I have maybe 30 ish companies and you can manage, you can manage it when you show up for those in those three ways. Um, you know, at a larger scale than one would maybe think to realize um, a fund of my size. And so I have found that I haven't really reached the capacity of the amount of companies I can manage per se under one person. Um, at some point, 
I will build a team. I didn't name the fund after uh, myself, right? And so I want to build something that lives beyond me. And uh, and so at some point, uh, I will likely bring on partners uh, on this journey. Um, but so far, it has been my founders have found that that uh, he's available whenever he, he needs to be available. And I get a lot of leverage. As a solo GP, you look for leverage to add value. And so I alluded to this, but I built a bench of operating partners who are one of the first 25 at the world's best technology companies, just to name a few. Employee 10 at Stripe, who spent eight years. Employee 1 at DoorDash. Employee 9 at Slack, who built the very first marketing and business function. Employee 6 at Shopify. Employee 25 at Figma. Employee 1 at Salesforce. Employee um, 23 at Airbnb. Those are some of the names that I pair with my founders. It also helps me win opportunities, but post-investment, they, they connect with them every quarter and me. Right. Um, as a generalist, you look for these areas that where people have domain expertise. And so while I apply a first principles thinking to the investment that I make um, at the time of making the investment, you know, maybe it might be serve you well to talk to the person who's operated in your space for like a decade um, at one of the best companies in the world and uh, get inspiration from that conversation than necessarily with me. And so you get a lot of leverage for there. You can buy more time as a solo GP. And I, I love the constraint because you, you don't get out of hand you take on what you can you look for leverage and and so i've um, really enjoyed and felt very blessed to be in business to to build the kind of firm that i that i'm building yeah does that help answer yeah it sounds like you're making it work yeah absolutely i mean you're you're a tribal networker at heart is what you are you're a tribal networker i gotta ask though i mean what the hell do you use as a crm yeah matt i am not the most organized person as it relates to <laughs> to to like the systems that i'm using and and i guess what people don't know maybe is you have to you have to look back like my history of a decade in these roles that we briefly talked about uber hired was always been in an expansion like role i never had teams really reporting to me i was the one vp that didn't have like a like a like a whole sort of dot like org structure under underneath me uh if you call any of those ceos they would they would characterize me as he was like always out there on the road call like he's a road warrior you know you have to launch you have to incubate a business he would find leverage in the org to like get an engineer get a designer just like because he was so early had this tribal knowledge to figure things out it's this muscle that i had had for a decade that uniquely has translated into this job that like i just find a way to be very organized in my own weird way. Uh, what, when, when I start to level up the firm and folks come in, we will probably have to figure out like the systems because the systems are going to now need to sort of take everything from my head and, and sort of help translate it out. But if it's just me, I don't really know why I need like all these systems. Like I know, I know what I need to do. I know what needs to happen. I, can prioritize my time. I know which founder I need to talk. I know like who needs help. And so, I mean, it's as simple as Evernotes for me or, or, or Notion docs, like to be real. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. I appreciate it. I mean, it is, it's a, uh, it's key man risk at its finest, I guess, but it works for you. I don't want to take a talk uh, for two days here, but I do love everything you're sharing. So maybe I'll ask a few more questions. One, how has your portfolio construction model changed as your fund sizes continue to increase, you know, 8x from fund one to two and 
now going into the sort of $40, $50 million targeted fund for fund three. How do you think about portfolio construction, ownership targets, things like that? Fund one was proof of concept, wanted to prove I can get or demonstrate that this network would provide me with high at-bats and home run ratios. And so 100K checks, trying to get, ownership wasn't really a thing. Fun two was to prove that people thought the TAM that I'm going after was really small. Canadian expats, oh, how long can you do that? Like, how many of them are there? I wanted to prove that TAM is bigger than one would likely expect. It's not obvious that there are a lot of Canadians leaving Canada in the context that I'm looking for them um, that you'd be you'd be surprised for. And so, while first fund was like, hey, the math won't work at nine investments hundred, like it's just like the math doesn't work. Like, like you need to get 20 to 30, you know, demonstrate that you can scale and there's like a repeatable scalable process around your, around your strategy. And so fun two was to prove that uh, this strategy is sound and scalable is repeatable. And so there's 27 shots of goal in fun two that had not really ownership targets are there either, but it was more so let me prove that same founders that I'm looking at slightly larger checks. So the average checks were 500 K in that fund. Um, but let me prove that there's more than more than enough. And we have a couple of winners already, like the Neo as an, as an example. The third fund here is to prove ownership. It's funny. LPs now look at the 30-ish investments I have and they're like, man, you're really good at getting into deals. Like you're really like, look at your syndicate of investors. How are you getting into deals? And I'm, and I'm like, I, while I appreciate that sentiment, which sounds good. What you haven't noticed until you talk to my founders is I was the first person to get the conviction on them. I was the first person to meet them. I was the first person to commit, frankly. But those checks were small, and so a round had to come together for it to like materialize. And now you can you could look at the cap table, my schedule of investments, and kind of see, oh, you can get a two fifty five hundred k check into this like hot round or whatever. But now I'm writing checks up to one and a half to two million dollars. You can't. You can't squeeze a one and a half million dollar check into a round, right? And so I just mentioned I co-led with Andreessen. I co-led with some other storied seed funds in the Valley. You don't do that by squeezing, by getting into rounds. You do that because the strategy that I have leads me to spend time with these founders faster and earlier than others. My pattern recognition gets me to conviction faster than others. And now I'm able to lead and co-lead and partner with them, um, with the check sizes that I that I that I can now write, and so now I'm on this journey in my in my phase of, of demonstrating that the best founders, the ones that I, I continue to find and back, and that have this this outlier like nature to them, and, and you know all the wins that Canadian um, founders have have produced, will partner with Maple at the very earliest uh, stages uh, for 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 five to ten percent ownership is now sort of the portfolio construction in this in this fund and it's got some reserves for it so like your kind of standard one for one dollar that is reserved for each dollar deployed and uh but same same thesis same strategy same approach three-year three-year term like again fund one was 2016 to 2019 fund two 2019 to 2022 uh this one will be 2022 to 2025 or 2023 to 2026 like i i did the first close basically in january yeah 
you're basically institutionalizing the process that you've always been doing. It's funny how LPs and say, like, how did you squeeze into this deal? It was actually the opposite. It was like, <laughs> how did they squeeze Correct. into this deal? Correct. Is what you're saying. And now, I, you know, but now the, the real uh, rubber meets the road where they are going to be squeezed out almost because <laughs> you are trying to squeeze in. But we'll save that for another episode. I mean, Last question. I want to just talk about the current fundraising environment. There's a lot of emerging managers, you know, struggling to raise their next funds, you know, get from one to two or two to three or three to four. And there's also a lot of talk about the lack of DPI and how funds are trying to find ways to generate, you know, returns to just demonstrate their their viability as a venture fund. You know, how are you trying to demonstrate uh, to your LPs your viability and that you are building an enduring venture franchise? Yeah, one is the you know, the strategy hasn't changed. So same thesis, same strategy, same approach, and uh, just now larger checks. They want to see that the strategy kind of hasn't changed. Like LPs invest in lines, not dots. That relates both to relationships, but also to like the strategy. Are you changing it completely? Because then I have to underwrite a completely new model and you're like, I have no proof, you know, uh, or track record to look back to. And so that's, I think, one element. I think the other element is talking to the founders to see, gosh, is the value that they're bringing um, this this partner, this investor, repeatable, uh, something they can continue to do, something that's fundamental to the next company being founded, uh, or is it a point in time that you that you could provide that might sort of go in vogue or out of vogue? Uh, like, how foundational are is this is is the value out of this firm to? The ecosystem and to to the uh, to company building in general, and so I think they underwrite. I think they're underwriting that value add piece as they do references to, to founders. See how long standing could this firm could this firm be? And then I probably the third the third bucket is like you obviously the most enduring venture firms in the world happen to just be in the most enduring companies in the world. While that sounds obvious, right? But like you just have to be in some of the most important companies in the like areas that you play and and we know it takes a long time to demonstrate that right i think there is there is a budding sense uh while it's still early for me there's a budding sense that we happen to be able happens to be in in some of the world's potentially most enduring companies the at the earliest stages in in actually all of the regions i operate in a canadian context neo happens to be that flag at the moment obviously it's still early and we'll we will see um uh, silicon valley i've, I've got a, a bunch from one one and two there budding all day kitchens probably is up there at the series c funny enough one of my top five performing companies happens to be a korean canadian in korea uh, building uh, digitizing residential real estate here um you happen to be early at we work and should that company become really important in 10 years a lot of founders will might look to Maple uh, in the future in an Asia context potentially. I am as a, as Maple's founder. I'm basically planting flagpoles of 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 the most important companies and daring companies in these in these regions and setting this up for hopeful success to build a team around at some point to play in each of these regions uh, at the seed stage. That is the pattern recognition. We just want to be the the, the, we want to be mentioned in the same breadth as Sequoia at the at the pre-seed and seed stage, and that would be be one of the most beloved firms to 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 partner with. I think if you can demonstrate early innings of that, LPs, which now thankfully some of the largest institutional LPs, both in Canada and the U.S., are starting to recognize that and, 
leveling me up to the to the next stage of the journey with this forty fifty million dollars. It is fantastic, and it's been an incredible journey to watch you from uh, the north of the wall uh, to see all the success you've had. So appreciate you sharing that with us. You know, before we wrap things up, we always ask our guests for their fast favorites. So first off, your favorite podcast that is going to be acquired. So uh, are you familiar with acquired? Of course, yeah. Uh, Costco is by far one of my favorite ones recently. To to the point of like studying wins. If I haven't, if I'm not on the win, or if the win isn't on the bench that these operating partners that can tell me their stories. I'm a fiend for just wanting to like suck up as much of the wins again, early days, how these things got there. Cause that's my job. And I think I learn a lot. From those so yes, acquired. Yeah. Those guys are incredible. Next is your favorite newsletter or blog. Have you heard of the generalist? Of course. Yep. Again, subscribe. To it's it. like studying, <laughs> studying companies, studying people, studying venture firms from their earliest days. I'm obsessed with pattern recognition and these things. Again, I think you only learn from wins. So that's another one. Nice. Favorite tech gadget? I, as a tech investor, I don't really have any tech gadgets other than- Come on. Being in Korea, there's got to be so many electronics around you. I know. That's a good call. I have this cool speaker in my living room, but I can't even name the name of the speaker that's out that's so. <laughs> You know, uh, little I, I pay attention to the details of these tech gadgets. So I'll I will pass if I don't if I don't if you don't mind. Fair enough. Favorite new trend? This is a foregone conclusion. But man, as an as an investor, you look for inflection points in time. We briefly talked about this, but like Uber was most successful because of the timing that it happened to align with um, mobile. Favorite new trend is AI, dude. Like like this is foundational. New business models are going to emerge from this, and you can't ask for a better gift as an investor for a technical enablement where you literally couldn't do stuff a year ago, and an economic moment in time, which is challenged. You meet those two things, the biggest returns in history have been created historically when those two things collide. And I thank God I'm in business at this moment in time to be able to capture that. So that is the term. With capital exactly. to deploy. Yeah, that's a great point. Great point. Next is your favorite book? Chew Dog, because it is like, uh, like as you mentioned earlier, it's effing hard to build. It's heroic, actually, to build something of endurance in the world. It's heroic. And that book gives you a really good, gritty view of how heroic it actually is. And when you look up, you're like, oh, wow, I created this thing. Like, I, I love that. I'm into the Elon book at the moment. And I'm getting a similar vibe, but I haven't been in, in order to, like, make that the favorite. I, I read True Dog twice, back to back. So that one's that was my favorite. Uh, awesome. And last but not least, your favorite life lesson. Reza Satchu, who taught me economics of entrepreneurship at U of T, instilled something in that class to me, which was always put yourself in uncomfortable situations because that's how you will grow. I guess I'm a fiend for that, both in the job that I do. I would say when so. I write the check <laughs> that I do, most times I want to throw up <laughs> and like I'm scared to shit when I scared shitless when I write that check, which I think is a good feeling, but like I grow from it. And then even living in a very homogenous society, looking like myself, while I love it, it's quite uncomfortable. And but I'm learning a ton and I grow as a person. So that's probably. That's fantastic advice. And thanks so much for joining us in the tank today with Andre Cheroux from Maple VC. Thanks, Matt. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Tank Talks. We hope you found today's conversation as insightful as we did. If you're enjoying the show, we've got three quick things to ask of you. 
first, hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or YouTube. Next, follow us and stay up to date on upcoming episodes and behind-the-scenes content on social media with Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. And lastly, share the love. If you found value in today's episode, share with a friend or colleague who'd benefit too. Your support helps us bring in more amazing guests and keeps the Tank Tots engine running. That's it for today. Until next time, keep disrupting and innovating.